I ask that you join me in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, as Ryan brings my volume down to a manageable level for your ears. Down is the other way. Maybe the gain needs to come down too. We have a lot of people sick with COVID and we changed out the computer. So anything that can go wrong will go wrong. How how we doing, Ryan? We low enough yet? My voice feels very powerful. And you know I don't talk this calmly. It will escalate. I did set these. That's the record. It was my fault. All right, so John chapter 5. And our text this morning helps us to ponder this question. And I want you to consider this question yourself. Would God tell you to do something you are unable to do? Would God tell you to do something you are unable to do on your own strength or with your own ability? If you can answer this question, you're going to solve a riddle that church historians have argued about for many, many years and many theologians have argued about. Let's read our text this morning. John chapter 5 says, After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate. Sorry, guys. I'm just changing the setting here. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethsaida in Aramaic which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Verse 7, Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool, When the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Verse 8, get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. Your law or the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin any more, so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Verse 15, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things 
on the Sabbath. Bow your heads with me. Father, as we approach your text this morning, may we approach with fear and trembling. May we recognize that this is your word and we are not allowed to tamper with what you have said. Father, as we think about who Jesus is, as we think about the grace that is greater than all of our sins, as we think about this character aspect of Jesus, may we be humbled, may we be open to what your word tells us this morning. And we ask these things in in Christ's beautiful name, amen. So let's go back to the background. Remember, we've been walking through John now for a little while, or we're back to the next season, and we're continuing our study in the life of Jesus through the eyes of John. So remember John's point. John's goal in writing this letter, he tells us in John 20, 31. It says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that is John's point. That clears up a lot of the questions we have as to why John seems to put things in different orders than the other gospel writers. And we know that this is a theological point that John is making as he is telling the story of Jesus. As any good storyteller would, t- would tell you, that they are putting things in a certain place in order for you to get the message. And the message that John has here is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is this long-expected Messiah. And one way that John does this is by centering his narrative around miracles and signs. The various miracles in John are, are often referred to by John as signs. He uses a particular Greek word to point to what he is doing here. And these are signs. And the signs in John are pointing to a greater reality than the event itself. These signs are more than just the object that is happening. It's pointing to something greater. So just like a road sign, if you said Sierra Vista in 15 miles, or, or it says Sierra Vista, that sign is not Sierra Vista, right? Sierra Vista is the town that it's pointing to, that it's pointing at. And that's what these signs are doing. These signs are pointing to a greater reality than the event itself. And John is showing us who Jesus is, And we begin to see more of his character. So as we look at Jesus and this sign, this particular sign, and I'm calling this a sign of grace in the house of mercy. A sign of grace in the house of mercy. And there's six key areas to notice in this sign. And if you know me, I try to stick to two points. Today we have six. So just buckle up, cancel your dinner plans. The first thing I want you to notice is the crowd. In this passage, we have a crowd here. In verse 1, it says, After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He goes up topographically, not geographically, right? So the reason it says up is he's coming from the north, but Jerusalem is a higher plane than the other. So those of you who are scouts, you recognize how to look at a map, and that's what it is. It's, it's topographically up. And the setting, we get several details. First, he enters by the sheep gate. We don't know a whole lot about the sheep gate and why it's called the sheep gate. But one thing we do know is called the sheep gate because that's where they bring the sheep 
to the temple for slaughter. So that's typically the gate they would use to bring all these sheep in for slaughter. It's a one-way trip for a lot of these sheep. And so Jesus enters by the sheep gate. And just a few passages earlier, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so we have this connection to who Jesus is. It's as if John is pointing to Jesus saying, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus enters by the sheep gate. Next, he goes to this pool called Bethsaida, or Bethesda, depending on the spelling that you want to go with. But essentially, it means house of mercy. It's a house of mercy. It had five porticos, or like porches, and it had entryways with columns. I can imagine that some rich benefactor saw this crowd and said, you know what, they need shelter. And so he paid for a house of mercy for this crowd of people. And the next thing we really want to focus in on is the crowd in, verses, in verse 3a. It says, within these lay a large number, a large number, a big number. There's a crowd here. It's packed. It's a large number of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. It's a picture of hopelessness. It reminds me a lot of the VA waiting room. Those of you who have ever been to the VA and had to sit in the waiting room and try to get a prescription, you understand how hopeless it feels. You have men who have served their country, have been successful, but have gotten injured for various reasons, and they're all here trying to get help, and they're waiting. And if, if you know anything about the VA, there's some waiting lines. And I'm not trying to pick on the VA, I just know that that's my experience, that you have to wait. Uh, there was a point where I had to get three hours early to the VA just to get in time for my appointment because of how much um, waiting is involved at the VA. And so imagine this crowd. They are hopeless. They are lame. They're in this house of mercy. They're, they're standing by the pool. There's desperation going on, and it's hopeless. There's not modern medical care for the blind, for the lame, the paralyzed. The, the situation is bleak. It is hopeless. And so you have these crowds of disabled, and they're all crowded in there. I cannot imagine a more miserable place to visit. And if you think about it, most people would walk around the pool or away from the house of mercy to get to the temple. But Jesus enters in, it tells us here in this text. The reason for their congregating is really a type of false religion. Now we're going to get into a textual criticism issue. Isn't this fun? It derails the whole talk because we have to look at this. How many of you in your Bibles have verse 4? All right, so about half of you have verse 4, and the other half of you have it in a footnote. The footnote of verse 4 says, some manuscripts include 3b through 4, saying, waiting for the moving of the water because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up, recovered from whatever ailment he had. That seems to be like there's some missing verses going on here, right? 
Most Bibles will put brackets around this text to show that the earliest Greek manuscripts do not have this portion. So as they have found early manuscripts of the Greek, they have noticed, they've dated them, they've timed them, and they've found that they don't have the, this little section, these little, this verse and a half. And the reason is, the archaeologists who dug them up, they are finding the earliest ones. And so the ones that do include it may cause you to worry. Some of you in this room may be worrying that we have 98% of the Bible if we don't include verse 4. But the reality is that we actually have 102% of the Bible, meaning that this was a later edition. A scribe who was trying to be very helpful wanted to explain to us why these people were gathering by the pool. They were trying to explain to, the, the scribe reads this and says, you know what, later people who come along and read this are not going to know why there's a, a house of mercy here. And so, helpfully, he included in the original, or uh, he added a little footnote that got included into the original. So it's a later edition. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. If you have concerns or issues about this, man, come see me. I love to talk about this stuff. I get super nerdy. We'll pull out some Greek parchments, and we'll just nerd out over it. But the reality is this. It's really helpful for us to understand why are all these people gathering here. It doesn't really change our theology. It doesn't change any of the details of the text. But it is a helpful footnote because... They're gathered here because of a myth. The reason these people gather is because of angel idolatry. They believe that an angel comes down, stirs the water, and when that water is stirred, the first person to make it into the pool is rescued from their sin, rescued from their illness, rescued from their, their problem. So the first person to get wet would be healed. Now, you can see the desperation in this. I mean, this is a false hope. These people are hoping that it would happen. Imagine if the wind barely brushed the water. There would be a massive flood happening as everybody rushes into the pool. But the people are in such a desperate condition that they would crowd around this pool waiting for the water to move and to hope to be the first one in. And I don't think it was going to be very orderly. I don't think they're going to have a conversation like, listen, guys, Jim has been here for 40 years. He has been waiting for 40 years, so nobody rush in. Let's let Jim go. You know, you and I have only been here for 25, right? Let's let 40-year-old Jim make it in first. No, it's going to be chaos, and it would be hopeless. Yet Jesus has entered the house of mercy, and he is going to conduct a sign of pure, sovereign grace. After the crowd with need, we need to note the next thing, which is the second element, the lame man, the crippled man. In verse 5, we see this crippled man. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. 38 years. This man was disabled for 38 years, which means either he is 38 years old, he has been crippled for life, or he is older but has suffered from a crippling illness 38 years. So for at least 38 years, this man has been suffering. And only an act of God could change this man's misery. Only a miraculous event could change this man. So first we have his position. 
he must have been in a very desperate position. How many of you, when the internet goes out, are mad after 30 minutes? This man is disabled for 38 years. He was not next to the temple begging. Instead, he was waiting for this magical water to happen. He had put all his hope in this magical, mythical, false religion, and he is waiting for it to happen. He has placed himself down and even adopted the belief that if he was just the first one, he would be able to be saved. I cannot imagine the depth of his misery and the suffering that he is experiencing, the helplessness, how he is clinging to this one hope. I mean, think about his life. Who does he have to rely on? More than likely, it's probably his brother. His brother, as he's getting the kids ready for school, he has to get his brother. He puts them on the cart. He gets the kids. He puts the kids on the cart. He goes and gets the lunch boxes, give everybody their kosher meals, right? Places that he says, Do you have your mat, brother? Okay, good, we got your mat. And he goes, he drops off, he stops at the pool of Bethesda, drops his brother off, says, You have your sunscreen, what do you need? Need anything else? Okay, here you go. And then he goes and he takes his kids, right? His brother is having to do all the work for him, to feed him, to care for him. And so he is dependent on everyone else for his help. He is hopeless and he's dependent on the grace of others. And when we consider this man, I don't think we should miss the sign that is being done here. Because God has orchestrated this appointment between this man and Jesus for a reason. John does not just include this in here because it's an interesting story. There is a divine purpose for this. Because it shows us the helpless estate humanity is in. Over and over again, John's signs that Jesus is doing is to show us something about the spiritual nature of humanity. And this is what he's, he's doing. He is showing us the helpless estate that humanity is in. So often we as humans, we fall for all types of false religions. We like to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Or have you heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that. So what is it telling us? Well, it's telling us that no matter how hard we pull on our bootstraps, no matter how much we want to get well, no matter how many false hopes we place ourselves, no matter how close you get to the pool, no matter if you're going to be the first one or the last one, you don't try harder. It won't happen. We have a culture around us that's in a helpless and hopeless estate. Everybody has an idea about how to fix us. Just vote this certain way. Just believe these certain things. Just take this ointment. Right? Any number of solutions are being offered. These false hopes are going to leave them more and more miserable. So, what is the application? The application is that God's word tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all of our works are like filthy rags. No matter how well-intentioned, no matter how uh, hard you work at it, you will never save yourself. We need sovereign 
grace. We need grace, which some have defined as unmerited favor. What does that mean? Well, that God has shown us favor and that we did not earn it through any merit of our own. Jesus did not come to this crippled man because he had gumption. Jesus did not come to this crippled man because he was the most motivated of all the lame or he had the biggest amount of faith. He came because this man was hopeless. He came because this man was unlovable and that this man was unlovely. And so this is where Jesus comes in. The third thing we see is the compassion. Jesus is the epitome of grace. In verse 6 it says that when Jesus saw him lying there and realized, and in the Greek that word is no, when he had known that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Jesus chose this man out of the entire crowd of people. Jesus knows this man has been there a long time. He sees this man's struggle, and Jesus is always compassionate. He draws near to the unlovely and the unlovable, and he goes out of his way to engage with this man in his hopeless estate and position. And then Jesus does this. This is so startling to me, and I hope it is to you. He approaches him, and he asks him a question. What does he ask? Do you want to get well? Man, all the commentators, they're all over the, the board on this one. What is Jesus talking about? Is it because that if you're a crippled person, you make a lot of more money by being a cripple, by begging, by the temple, and that gives you a lot more stuff? Um, what, what is it that Jesus is getting at here? That, the question strikes me as odd. This man has been here trusting in a false religion for a long time. And what we know about Jesus is this. He always gets to the heart of the problem, doesn't he? His questions never touch the surface level. They always get to the root issue. The root issue is not that this man wants, doesn't want to get well. The root issue is that this man is trusting in something completely bogus. In fact, by asking this question and revealing the lame man's situation, Jesus could be considered quite offensive. If he asked this question, if you went to the VA and, and asked these guys at the VA if they wanted to get well, you may get punched in the face, right? Because the reality is, well, yes. But Jesus, the epitome of compassion, asked this question to unveil the man's motives. And the man's confession points to this truth. Look at the confession in verses 7 through 8. It shows us how this man is unable, total inability. Verse 7 says, Sir or Lord, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. And then verse 8, get up, Jesus told him. So man, the man first reveals his inability. He states rather plainly, I cannot make it in time to the water. He says, I can't get there. His false religion is on full display. He has all his hope on making it to the water first, but only he is unable to do so. How many people do you know that are struggling with some sin issue in their life and they say, well, I'm unable to get out of it. It's a genetic disorder, or it's a, um, a lifetime of abuse, or any number of things. And they say, I just can't 
do it on my own. And this man says he is unable to. And, and this man truly believes in his false hope. I mean, he has invested his time at this well. He has put the time in. It almost seems like he wants to enlist Jesus into his program. Did you notice that? It sounds to me not that he wants to get well necessarily on Jesus' terms, but that he wants to enlist Jesus into his agenda. That's why he says, I have no one to help me. Maybe this man who has got two feet and can walk will be my ticket out of here. Maybe he will be here to help me get to this pool. Look, I just need you to give me a little help, seems to be what the man is saying. I have no one to pick me up and carry me. The answer to this lame man, I think, is very instructive. This, the answer of the lame man is very instructive. The man has a false hope and wants to enlist Jesus into his agenda. And the application is, how often have you heard evangelism done this way? God loves you and has a special plan, a wonderful plan for your life. Man, that sounds great. That fits right along with my agenda. This lame man would say, oh, you mean Jesus will help me get into the water? Awesome. I'll believe in that Jesus. The Jesus that will come along on my agenda, help me get what I want? Where do I sign up? But that's not how it works, is it? Jesus didn't come to give us a little boost to fulfill some type of self-esteem need to make you better people even. He came to draw people to his agenda. He came to draw people to his kingdom. He came not just to heal and save the blame and the blind, but to, to heal and save the lost the sinners of this world. So what is his agenda? Well, John 3.14 tells us that he is to be lifted up. This is an allusion to the cross. Jesus came to die. His purpose was to save those who were unable to save themselves. John 3.15 tells us that those who believe in him have eternal life. So Jesus' agenda, one, is to come and die, to be lifted up, so that those that are unable to save themselves can look at him and be saved, to believe in him and be saved. And what does it mean to believe in him? Is that he lived the complete, perfect life that we are unable to live. He lived in such a way that he fulfilled the law. And his death and resurrection show that God the Father accepted the Son's sacrifice as an atonement for the sins of his people. And then why is that? Well, in order to live, we must not only believe to look to Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. We must live by believing. That means we look to Jesus. And Jesus' perfect life is placed on us. And his sinful, and our sinful life is laid on him and nailed to that cross. No one can do that. No one can do this great exchange. I, I really love this saying. I, I can't remember who said it, but I say it a lot. But we all who are believers are double amputees. Right? Our sin has been imputed to Christ, and Christ's sin has been imputed to us. 
We are double amputees. But Jesus warns us about something in John 3, 19. It says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Even though Jesus came to his own, they loved the darkness more than him. They loved their false religion more than him. They were concerned more about their agenda than seeing Jesus for who he truly was. John 3.20 also talks about it. So that brings us to the critics. The fifth thing that I want you to see is that we have critics. So before we get to the cure, we got to look at the critics. 9b through 16 talk about critics. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath, and you should feel the tension immediately. The Sabbath. The weight of Jewish law is centered on the Sabbath. And so the Jews, now remember when John says the Jews, he's referring particularly to the Jewish leadership who is hostile to Jesus, said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath, the law prohibits you from picking up your mat. They didn't say, oh man, you're healed, that's amazing. No, they said, oh man, why are you carrying a mat on the Sabbath? He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. And then they say, who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Not like, oh man, that's amazing. No, who is he? We've got to track him down. Verse 13, but the man who was healed did not know who it was. This man was healed, he didn't even know who healed him. Because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Jesus chose this man out of the entire crowd to heal. Verse 14, after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, do not sin anymore so something worse doesn't happen to you. 15, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What we're seeing here is that we're, we're seeing an escalation of hostility towards Jesus. And that's going to be very important as we move forward in John, as we see that this escalating criticism of Jesus is going to eventually lead to his crucifixion. Their scrupulosity or their legalism, they only see a man breaking the Sabbath law, and they question him about his actions. They find out who Jesus is, that it was Jesus, and they begin to grow hostile. Jesus has challenged the status quo. He upends a lot of their legalism. He bruises their pride, and they begin to look for any possible way to persecute him in verse 16. John, of course, carefully demonstrates the growing animosity of the religious leaders of the time. And this event further demonstrates what the Jewish leaders were concerned about. It really reveals priorities. So not only is Jesus unveiling everyone's priorities and their heart conditions, he's showing it in such a, a vivid way. Just like he told Nicodemus, the people love darkness rather than light. But we must see the cure in verse, or, or um, the cure, which is number five. 
We do not want to miss the actual physical sign here. 9a says, Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. The man is healed. And he does it as he is told because the grace of Jesus has enabled him to do it. He obeys the word of Jesus, just like we talked about last week, the obedience of the word. He obeys the word of Jesus and stands up and walks. He, of course, has to deal with critics and the like, but we see his priorities because Jesus finds him where? Back home, hanging out with his family. He finds him in the temple. This is significantly important. This lame man goes to worship. Because a man who has been lame for 38 years has no access to the temple. 38 years of not being allowed to go to church. Not allowed to go and attend the temple ceremonies. What a wonderful experience. This man kept from the temple because of his affliction, now in the twinkling of an eye, is able to enter into worship. And this is where Jesus meets him again and talks with him some more. And in this very short conversation, Jesus reveals to us a deeper reality, an ultimate reality. If you go back to verse 9, look at it again with me. So Jesus calls him to get up, to pick up his mat and walk, and instantly in that calling, he got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. The order is very significant in John. In fact, John 6 is going to point or maybe better yet, give us a reason why John 5 is so important. Jesus healed him first, enabled him to get up and walk. The estate of the man was total inability. Then Jesus intervenes with his sign of grace, enabling the man to obey. There's a very particular order. And then in verse 14, Jesus points to something more troublesome than being crippled. I want you to think about this with me for a minute. If you went up to a blind person and you said to them, your biggest problem isn't that you're blind, you may get punched, right? But Jesus says, listen, guy, you are crippled, but that's not your biggest problem. Your physical problem is not superior. Your biggest problem, something more troublesome than being lame for 38 years, is sin. Sin is is the problem and many people have tried to unravel this and i think it's really simple jesus tells him i dealt with your physical problem remember he's in the temple but you have a far deeper problem sin jesus tells us that there's something worse than being crippled it's by being crippled by sin humanity Humanity's biggest problem is spiritual. The only solution is Jesus Christ who takes away the sins of the world. And so you may think you need freedom from your circumstances. You may think that you need to be free from this bad, no good situation that you have. But the reality is this, is what you need more than anything is this Jesus Christ. And you need the great physician cutting away the cancer of sin in your life. And one of the ways that Jesus does that is by putting you through difficult circumstances, by putting you in trials, by having you lose things, by having you gain things that you don't want. 
All these things are God's tools in cutting away the cancer in your life that is sin. And this is not an easy pill to swallow. This is not always fun. No one says that discipline is enjoyable at the time, but we know that it produces in us something greater. So the question I want to ask you is, would God tell you to do something you are unable to do? I think Augustine helps us out with this question. He says, God, give me grace to do what I cannot do. You cannot make it through the situation that you're in on your own strength. You are unable to. The circumstances are going to be very overwhelming. What God calls us to do, he gives us the grace to enable us to do what he calls us to do. It's like a a riddle. Understanding this sovereign grace at the start of the Christian life is necessary to understand the rest of the Christian life. Because we are certain to face this. We are certain to face personal sin and the insufficiency of ourself. How many of you have come to Jesus, gone along for a little while, and then hit a wall and said, you know what, I can't do this anymore? Jesus doesn't just give us the gas to go for a few miles. He is the continual gas station. He refreshes us, renews us, rejuvenates us. He, he sanctifies us by his grace. What hope do we have apart from Jesus Christ coming to us, restoring us, enabling us to forsake sin, and then enabling us to follow him? So in the same way that justification is a result of God's enabling grace in Jesus Christ, so also is our sanctification, our being made holy. Our our ongoing growth is a result of Jesus enabling us to continue. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I want to ask you this question. What do you do with this Jesus? Jesus has met all of us today in his word. Everyone in this room has met with Jesus in his word. He has shown us that he is merciful, that he is compassionate, that he is not here to fulfill your agenda, but to save you from your sins. If you are a sinner in need of grace, which I know we all are, his mercy has come to you. And I want you to sing the words of our final song with meaning, with gusto. The song that we're going to sing as Justin comes up is, His mercy is more. We have grace greater than all our sin. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we leave this place, Let us not neglect such a great grace and such a great mercy that comes from Christ and Christ alone. Lord, we are so undeserving. We are, as the lame man, as the crippled man, unable to make ourselves well. Lord, we are unable to face tomorrow without the strength that you provide. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us grace, that you would enable us to move forward in this life that you would be with our little congregation, that we would seek to be a grace-offering community, that we would offer people Jesus, not to fulfill their agenda, but to fulfill your agenda, that we would be totally and fully submitted to your will and to your word, 
as we go this week. Lord, I pray for our, our sick congregation, those who are ill with COVID and have tested positive. Lord, I pray for your, your protection on them. But Lord, most importantly, I pray that you use this as a means to refine them, to make them more like you, to make them holy, even as they face the physical experience of sickness. Lord, we ask these things in your precious name, your beautiful name, and through the power of the Spirit. And God's people said, Amen.